0: Welcome to the Artelligence podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the LiveArt app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. We're about to give you a preview of the lots on offer in London next week. But first, I wanted to remind LiveArt app users that some of the most popular features are back. You can follow all of the sales as they happen. The app gives you real-time bidding in a new user interface. Once the auctions end, you'll see a breakdown of the sale based upon presale expectations and lot performance. The new app shows that in a bright, easy to understand design. You can also set your preferences to show the top performing lots by price. Soon you'll also be able to show the top performing lots against the estimates. If you aren't using the app, we hope you'll download it before the sales begin. If there's anything you'd like us to include in future updates, please let us know. You can find us on social media on Twitter at artmarket or email us at feedback at liveart.io. Don't forget to update the app so you're using the latest release next week during the London sales and the week after for New York's mid-season sales. Now let's turn to the upcoming auctions. In this podcast, we speak to Helen Newman at Sotheby's Will tell us about their $60 million Magritte, the half dozen Monets, a Picasso, and a Van Gogh. Catherine Arnold de Christie's will discuss their late Bacon triptych, a portrait by Lucian Freud, as well as a Bridget Riley work held by the same family for 57 years. Giovanna Bertazzoni tells us about a restituted Franz Marc painting and their surrealist Picasso. Finally, Cheyenne Westfall goes through the long list of breakout artists at Phillips and others whose markets continue to roll on, but she also takes a moment to discuss a rare, unseen work of Sigmar Polka's coming from the well-known collection of Emily and Jerry Spiegel. The first lot to discuss is a large, late work by René Magritte, made for the daughter of an important patron who has held onto the painting for 60 years. The most expensive Magritte ever sold was another work inspired by an important patron. According to the Live Art Free Database, Sotheby's auctioned that for nearly $27 million in 2018. But this work on offer is one of Magritte's most famous series, The Empire Light. Most people will recognize it as a nighttime streetscape crowned by a day-bright sky. A much smaller version of the image sold at Christie's in 2017 for $20.5 million. But this work comes to the market at a totally different level. I asked Helen Newman, chairman of Sotheby's Europe, if I was reading the market correctly and this lot was being offered at twice the previous record price.
1: Exactly. So yes. So we're saying in excess of 60 million dollars, which in pounds is around 45 million pounds. And so, as you, as you absolutely rightly say, Marion, it's it's far in excess of any previous auction price for Magritte. But we looked at it. I mean, first of all, I think you, you, you've you got to look at the subject. L'Empire des Lumières is one of his most famous iconic subjects, I mean, along with the bowler hatted man and the and the Sisinepa like, peep it 's it 's like one of the great images, and actually, I think the image is even more important because he returned to it so many times between the late forties and the early sixties you 've got these seventeen versions all in different sizes and some horizontal in format and some vertical in format. but of those seventeen works of which some are in museums in the Guggenheim. Uh, in um, uh, Brussels, in the Menil Houston. Um, so so some already taken out of the market anyway, but of those remaining ones that are in private hands, this is sitting up there as one of the the large format horizontal paintings. So it's a, me- a metre 46, it's a metre 14 by a metre 46 across. Sorry, I haven't got the inches, I'm very English about this. Uh, but anyway, it's monumental, it's got a very impressive scale and importantly the execution is absolutely up there amongst the best so you know what you're looking for with this subject is that incredible um, precision and exquisite execution of the silhouette of the leaves of the tree against the daylit sky and that totally comes to life in this so that's brilliantly executed and then you you have to kind of zoom out a bit because there aren't enough direct precedents and look at, you know, what people are paying now for a great masterpiece, of 20th century art. And I think it sits in that masterpiece category, along with, you know, a great Picasso or a great uh, Giacometti sculpture, or, you know, it has that real, um, you know, dare I say, sort of trophy appeal of of a top quality museum work.
0: Francis Bacon's large triptychs Have long been prized as trophy works. The four top prices for Bacon's work were paid for large triptychs. Christie's has one of the last ones he made on offer for 35 million pounds or nearly 50 million dollars. Catherine Arnold explains why it's such an event.
2: Look, Marion, it's really a, a complete dream for me to handle a major triptych at the same time as the Royal Academy is showing a wonderful exhibition called Man and Beast. Um, of Francis Bacon. It's the first time I think we've all seen, you know, great paintings by Bacon in the flesh en masse for some time. And certainly on the back of the heels of the pandemic, going and seeing Bacon in real life and experiencing firsthand the power that his paintings have and the fact that they really talk to the real substance of who we are and the things that we've just experienced. You know, that really brings to the fore the the idea that Bacon is one of the great 20th century uh, figurative painters. You know, he was a a real master of his craft. And this triptych, which he made uh, in 1986 to 1987, is a painting which tells a story both of his lifetime, you know, he was born in 1909, died in 1992. So he lived the kind of the full sweep of the last century. And in fact, his painting speaks to significant moments in in 20th century history as well. So he's looking back at moments in history. So In the left hand panel, you've got this portrait of Woodrow Wilson leaving the Treaty of Versailles discussions in 1919, the weight of history on his shoulders, as it would turn out. Uh, On the right hand side, on the right panel, you've got this extraordinary image, this after image of the assassination of Trotsky in Mexico City in 1940. And then in the central panel, you've got a portrait of John Edwards. But here you have John Edwards, not as the friend and lover of the late 80s. You've got John Edwards sitting in almost exactly the same pose that you see um, of George Dyer in the Black Triptych, which exists at Tate from 1972, that painting which was lamenting the love and loss of George Dyer, who was one of these great figures in Bacon's life. So for me this triptych is looking back not over, not only over those sort of turning point moments in european history and in the history of the western world um of course the treaty of versailles would have far reaching implications also into the second world war but you know also looking at moments in his own life that he came to regret as with everything you know history looks like it's a very clean line as though everything was always charted in front as if it was intended but these moments these turning point moments they you know the decision to move one way or another then has a huge ripple effect on on the rest of the charting of history as it does with one's life you know the decisions one makes within one's own life then have impacts on the future so for me this this triptych shows what bacon can really do in that He reflects on the whole history of a century and at the same time he's meditating on what it is to be a man, to be a man in love, to contemplate one's own demise, um, and to think about some of these kind of really great um, but also terrible themes at the same time.
0: One of the terrible things of the 20th century was the death and dislocation caused by both world wars. Franz Marc, the groundbreaking German painter, was killed during World War I, cutting short a promising life. His work, The Foxes, was later sold by a German-Jewish family fleeing the Nazis. The painting was recently restituted from a museum in the city of Dusseldorf. Christie's is offering the work with a whisper number of £35 million, or nearly $50 million. At that price, the painting would double the previous record price for a Marc, set in 2008 Giovanna Bertozoni co-chair of Christie's impressionist and modern art department explains why
3: so the mark is exceptional it's a very exciting moment um it, it's very moving I don't know if you had the opportunity to see it but it's uh, it's in person is incredibly moving uh, you really have this sense of tenderness and uh, coyness and um, shyness of, of the of these animals control their very um controlled within this vortex of futurist lines um and 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 that is incredible the contrast between the uh, cubo futurism of the revolutionary formal story uh on one side and on the other um the the real uh animal um touch uh, and human touch because i think there is something of a self self-portrait there um, and I think there is something of mark there and and the mixing of the two make it an incredible uh, pic- picture so I am um I think that people will be touched by it um, it's it's a masterpiece of masterpiece of modernism uh undoubtedly um as such I don't think it will be interesting only for people who are interested in German Expressionism or Blauer Reiter. I think it will be interested, uh, interesting for people in general who are looking for the best of modernism, um, and they understand how rare um, this work is. Basically, this is it. This is the opportunity to have a fantastic mark. There aren't others.
0: Claude Monet's work is an important driver of the entire art market. Over the last five years, $1.1 billion worth of Monet's work was sold at auction. That number would have surely been closer to $1.3 billion had the pandemic not curtailed 2020 auction sales. The peak year for Monet was 2018, when $352 million worth of work was auctioned. 2019 was a close second, with $296 million. And last year, there was $274 million in Monet sales. Next week, Sotheby's has six works on offer. Here's Helena Newman again to explain.
1: Five Monets, all coming from one American private collection. They they they're rather wonderful actually as a group because they kind of chart the 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 progress of Monet towards abstraction. They're all pre 1890s. So the earliest is like mid 1870s. So that's a small still life, and then it goes right through to a, a version of his haystack paintings, which is called got this very poetic title. It's called Les Demoiselles de Giverny. Apparently, that's what the French uh, called those kind of loose haystacks or grain stacks that you saw in in rural France. So they're not as tightly packed as the kind of the the haystacks that we know from the famous uh, series that uh, Monet painted, of which we sold the record. Um, painting, but they're kind of lucid. They look a bit like a woman in a traditional crinoline skirt; hence the name. So that's the that's the that's one of the top works in that group of five. Um, for, and then together with that, there's actually another very lovely painting by Monet in this group, which is chrysanthemums, and a, it is just the close-up of the flowers. There's no surrounding uh, a anchor. It's just right zoomed in on the flowers, very, very effective, clearly shows the influence of Japanese, which Moni obviously was exposed to in Paris, like so many of those artists. And it kind of prefigures his water lily paintings. So that's a really wonderful example. And then there are two landscapes. Uh, the snow scene, the ice flows, a small gem-like ice flows, and then Going right through to the summer, a beautiful painting of the cliffs at Dieppe with a wonderful um, sort of warm, glowing light. So that's a great group to have, really exciting. And then, as you say, comes the water lilies from a Japanese collection, estimated at fifteen to twenty million pounds. And I, and I think there's, you know, something for everyone in for money here in the sale. I mean, there's there's a depth of subject matter, a range of prices from uh, three and a half million pounds right up to the a uh, £15 million low estimate range. And uh, there's such a depth in the market right now for Monet. I mean, we're seeing that from collectors. Last year, we had this great success with Monet, didn't we, both in May and in November in New York with the Water Lilies painting, the large uh, late painting in May that made $70 million. And then just now in November in New York with the Bassin on Amphia, um that uh, sold for over 50. And that gave a, us a lot of very real time intelligence on who's looking for what and where the market is it is very geof- geographically spread it is about a third a third a third asia us and europe although there's actually you know a huge focus on the asian market because it's 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 still a growing expanding and uh, you know very active one but that I mean, those bidders are still competing very much with the US and European buyers. Um, So, actually, you don't really know going into the sale where these pictures are heading because it is truly global.
0: Christie's holds a dedicated evening sale of surrealist works every winter in London. There's been a resurgence of interest in surrealism in several areas. The Metropolitan Museum in New York just closed an important show of surrealist works. We heard earlier about the strong market for Magritte that has been going on for several years now. And there's continual talk of the influence of surrealism on young, present-day painters. However, one important surrealist painter, Pablo Picasso, has never fit easily into the movement. Giovanna Bertazzoni shares Christie's excitement at having found a work they feel can be the highlight of the category.
3: So it's a 1929 Picasso that um, is exceptionally interesting because it has this um, series of ciphers and symbols, uh, and in that sense, you know, even for the date, um, belongs to the so-called surrealist phase. Now, you know that Picasso, being Picasso, never really wanted to join the a movement and was resisting Breton um, fascination and, and trying to convince him to, to be enlisted as a proper surrealist. Um, he was too smart to be confined to one movement, as you know. But at the same time, uh, in 1927, he met uh, Marie-Thérèse and he was still married to Olga. And he needed to work in ciphers, to paint in ciphers, because uh, he was completely conquered by this erotic fashion and the new muse, but he couldn't really paint, uh, portray openly uh, this young woman uh, without creating a huge scandal. And so um surrealism is convenient because it, ho- it offers him uh, many ways of... um creating a charade and 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 saying and, and not saying it and so basically representing the two lovers in front of a window with an optimism a dazzling array of colors uh but everything is um is is basically uh in hieroglyphs uh he is this um double uh symbol of a leg uh pierced by an arrow which is also very phallic as you can imagine uh which is the e of Espana himself, identifying with Espana, um, she is this um, bust, which then becomes the wonderful uh, conquering um, bust that he rep- he does, he makes in Boisgeloux, uh, in the in the garage in Boisgeloux, as you remember, uh, that will be at this point the acme, the apogee of 1932. Uh, and he's you know definite masterpiece of the time, so she's in in embryonically getting to become those figures. So if you want to have all the ingredients of um what will become the big uh, shapes of uh, the thirties, the early thirties in a very uh, enigmatic but at the same time very colorful, very somehow, even if so, intellectual commercial picture. Uh, so, um, we love surrealist Picasso. We love the art of the surreal sale. It's been always our, um, uh, our big passion to have it once a year. Our, uh, calendar appointment in uh, February in London. Uh, our signature, if you want, it's, it's one of the works, uh, well, work sales that Chris is delighting. Uh, and we've been doing it for 21 years. Um, and so when we can catch a Picasso that is undoubtedly uh, full of this enigma, and talking about Surrealism, there it has to be, and it has a prouder place there. And it completes, actually, the sale. So we're very happy to have it in the Surrealist sale, it's his place. Now, the Manifesto Surrealism is 1924, this is 1929, so we are in that moment when we're still, you know, at the m- maximum uh, floor uh, of, of the movement. Um, with a uh, with a very, very personal uh, contribution from Picasso, which is rare, and I like that.
0: Christie's work, The Open Window, has an estimate of 14 million pounds, or nearly 20 million dollars. Playing with ambiguous figures was a passion of Picasso's long after he moved on from surrealism. A decade later, he was merging the images of his two lovers in a stark black-and-white work, That plays an important role in Picasso's practice. Sotheby's Bust de Femme from 1938 has an estimate of 10 million pounds, or nearly 14 million dollars. We're back with Helen Newman, who has more to say about the picture.
1: I mean, this is a really, really striking portrait, painted actually on New Year's Eve, 31st of December, 1938. And um, I mean, I love the black and whites of Picasso. In every decade, he did s- certain amount of monochrome works. I and mean, then you remember there was that fantastic show at the Guggenheim called Black and White, which was just a f- devoted to his black and whites. And of course, this comes just a year after Gannica, which was his most famous and most monumental of his kind of monochrome masterpieces. And I think he's using black and white here because he's deliberately blurring his female subject the, the 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 seated woman with leaning on her leaning on her elbow it's not really clear from her features, whether it's Marie-Thérèse, with whom he'd been already several years, or whether it's Dorma who he had more recently met. And he's at that point in the relationship where he's between the two, the, the golden Marie-Thérèse, who if he had painted in colour would have been unmistakable with her golden locks, or the very, very imposing and striking, black hair dorma so obviously this allows him to be ambiguous in 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 the woman and also i think it also plays on his um, uh, interest in in multimedia, because, you know, the thing about Picasso, he wasn't just a painter, he was a graphic artist, he was a sculptor, he, Dora Maar herself, was a photographer, and all those elements come together in this painting, and it's absolutely brilliant, because if you look closely, she's leaning on her elbow on a kind of pedestal, and the pedestal has got Picasso's the date of the painting painted on the side of it, 31st of December, 38. But it's almost like it's been inscribed into the stone. So you've got this mixture of stone, uh, like a, because he did these great sculptures of both Marie-Thérèse and then also Dora Maar. But the very famous one of Marie-Thérèse, the nose—it's part sculpture, it's part painting, and it's part graphic, and it's a masterpiece.
0: Also estimated at 10 million pounds is Lucian Freud's Girl with Closed Eyes. Catherine Arnold points out that although Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud were peers and are often grouped together in the idea of the School of London, their interests as painters were very different. You can see it here in this painting, made in the same year as Bacon's triptych.
2: Absolutely. We have a beautiful painting by Freud, and the, the really wonderful thing is, is that that painting was also made in 1986 to 1987. So you have these two giants, Bacon and Freud, and you look at what they're painting at the same moment in time. They could not be more different. We often talk about the London School, but in fact, although they were both figurative painters, they approached figuration in such a different way. Um, Bacon's very existential, and Freud's painting the people who were closest to him, you know, his friends and his family unlike Bacon who only painted from source images Freud sits in front of that subject and paints them from life and here he's painting the figure of Janie Longman Janie Longman was um, a great friend of Freud's Uh, Janie says that when she was sitting for Freud they laughed together a huge amount and I think you get that real sense in this painting girl with closed eyes because there is no tension in the way that she's depicted You know, sitting in front of an artist uh, and being painted is an incredibly intimate act. Uh, And in this picture, even more so, of course, because it's a naked portrait. But you see there's no tension, there is no... Uh, discomfort, you can tell that these people are complicit with one another. And even in the act of painting, Freud has these tiny little brush strokes which you see over the top of Janie's cheek. And it's like he's caressing her with the paintbrush. It's something quite extraordinary. And yeah, I, I'm extremely excited about it. It feels like um, something that anyone could own. And I've said it before, but I, I think it's probably the way any woman would want to be painted.
0: Intimacy, in both the sense of the size of the work and the subject of tenderness between lovers, is the theme of a Van Gogh that Sotheby's is offering with the £7 million estimate. Helen and Newman... Has more to say on that.
1: Well, we've got this very interesting work that comes from 1888, which is the the two lovers seen from behind, walking away from the viewer. Um, but it's cropped right in, and actually the story of the composition is very interesting because Van Gogh actually started with a much larger landscape painting with the bridge of uh, near Arles. and. Um, Apparently, well, he wrote in his letters that he abandoned the composition because the weather turned bad and he kind of you know couldn't make it work and uh, but he was obviously quite taken with this couple in what was the sort of center right foreground and cut out this part of the canvas and um, making it in a in way into a work in its own right and um, it's got a wonderful intimacy in a way, it's cropped right in, it's got a great intimacy. The complementary colours of the blues and the oranges, the yellow of his straw hat, the red, works very effectively. And it passed into the collection of the Ginous, Monsieur and Madame ginou who owned the Inn in Arles. And they had, in the end, you know, a great seven or eight very important paintings by Van Gogh. So it has this rather wonderful provenance, associating it with the with the genius, um and this interesting history. Um, but it's very uh, iconic Van Gogh, small in scale. I mean, the whole the whole painting is about uh, thirty five centimeters, thirteen inches or so tall. I mean, it, it's but it's powerful.
0: Powerful also describes the black and white op-art work by Bridget Riley that Christie's is offering with a £3 million estimate. The work is titled Reverse. It was made in 1963, but it was bought in 1965 by legendary Chicago collector Morton Newman. The painting has remained with the family ever since. Catherine Arnold tells us a bit more.
2: Look, Bridget Riley is a, is a hero of mine. I think she's an extraordinary woman and incredibly astute you know she would never describe her own work as um, abstract in a way she's almost kept the kind of resonance that exists in the world, but she's doing it through uh, transitions of color in certain instances and here, obviously, in monochrome. Um, these paintings are incredibly sought after, very rare, probably because people like the Neumanns keep them in their collections for 50 years. Um, it's on a beautiful scale. And I think it's wonderful timing because, of course, Bridget is preparing for the show, um, which she's opening at the Yale Center for British Art. Um, it's on the heels of the Hayward Gallery show, um, which she did um, a, a few years ago. But um, Bridget Riley is collected now very internationally. You know, I'm delighted to say that she's um, collected far beyond these shores, um, she's respected and sought after in Asia as well as in the United States. And uh, to put these three paintings alongside one another, you know, Bacon and Freud are clearly key figures of um, figuration after the war in Britain. Um, but Bridget is is a legend for what she's contributed, both as a female artist, um, but beyond that, as a British artist.
0: We're in the midst of a rare moment in the art market where there's a great deal of activity and demand across the value spectrum. You've already heard about the several masterpiece-level works on offer next week. Usually, when that end of the market heats up, demand for emerging talent fades. Phillips has a very strong roster of new names in their sale and artists whose markets are continuing to grow. Cheyenne Westfall is going to fill us in on those works, but first... She has something of a sleeper to discuss, a work by a well-known 20th century artist with an estimate of one million pounds.
4: I am most excited by a work by Sigmar Polke, which is from 1965 and is one of his earliest stoff builder of fabric paintings. And it is a work that is um, really seen for the first time at public auction. And it comes from the esteemed former collection of Emily and Jerry Spiegel. They bought it in 1988 from um, Barbara Gladstone and lent it that same year to a Guggenheim exhibition that Diane Waldman has curated. But it hasn't been seen since, so it's a real, real discovery and um, and something that um, is going to be very exciting for Polka Collective. It is executed on a wonderful fabric of um, Native American. Uh, imagery, um, but done almost as if it's like a children's illustration. So um, very playful, very abstracted, and um, and the actual work that um, that Polke created is is from a series where he really riffs off modern art. And um, you've got a composition that is very Mondrian-like, with sort of rectangles in pale yellow, and then you've got. Abstraction that looks based on maybe Jean Arp or Vasily Kandinsky, um, and it's just it, it's just a, a, a wonderful um, comment that he was making on. On modern art at the time, we had a piece in in London by Polka from the same series in the last sale that we sold very well for three million pounds. But it's um, it's very difficult to find these works. And um, and what is particularly exciting about the work that we're offering now is that it is um, apart from the exhibition at the Guggenheim, it hasn't really been shown publicly anywhere. So most people will be will be very surprised and not familiar with it. And since that early body of work is not so big, it is is really a wonderful surprise.
0: The market looks to Philips for emerging trends. Figurative painters have beguiled collectors for several years now. Cheyenne tells us that another turn seems to be coming.
4: We do have um, a very exciting, um, I would say, start of the sale with artists of the moment and also artists that we are premiering for the first time and um, and what I'm really um, finding very interesting we've seen such a rise of figuration in in recent seasons um, but this time around we're really presenting also a very new language in abstraction that is coming in and of course you know Jari jutime has been um Premiered by us um, a couple of seasons ago, and we are very lucky to have two significant works by her um, coming up at auction. And you know, she is an artist who um, is really exploring abstraction in a in a very new way and developing her own language, which is deeply rooted in memory and um, partly in nostalgia and is also a very physical act for her often working at night using her whole body to paint um, and creating these really large animated surfaces which is um which is um which is very exciting and we're also um offering again a wonderful work by shara hughes who again we've seen so strong in in recent seasons and her work as you know is is also um an abstraction that takes its roots in landscape painting but um really stays away from becoming too close and being too much red in terms of figuration um both artists taking um a great interest in art history. Um, Looking back, um, the likes of Matisse um, in Sharrow's work, David Hockney, um, and taking inspiration and uh, displaying a real knowledge of the history of art. And I find that very exciting and interesting in um, the way we are seeing um, younger artists come through. And we are Premiering um, this time around, um, Lauren Quinn at auction, who is very much um, an artist of the moment, abstract artist based in LA, um, as I said, the first time at auction, working on a very, very large scale. And she takes her inspiration again from um, the earlier part of the century, from the modern work of Fernand Leger in what she refers to um, tubalism instead of cubism. And we've got a very, very strong work by her coming up, and that is um, is opening the sale for us, and it's estimated at 32 £40,000 to watch the space. You know that's what we do very well here at Philips. The other artist that we're premiering is um, Dorn Langberg, um, the Israeli-born Brooklyn-based artist who had his um, first London major show at Victoria Mirror recently. And um, We're selling a work of an artist friend of his called Amy in her studio, which is a very intimate um, portrait um, of his work that is um, is 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 sort of slightly outside of his um, strong interest in representing um, queerness, his exploration of queer intimacy, of queer sexuality. This work is slightly more recent and is more filtering into the intimacy of friendship and, and a very close artist link. So that will be the other debut at auction at Philips, um, coming up um, also at um, thirty to £50,000. And this sale, we are we are building on um, record prices that we've set last season. We're going to be having a large-scale work by Emily May-Swift mm-hmm. uh, called Raft of the Siren Sea. Um, we're also having a work by Serge atukwe Clotti, who um, we set a London record for in October. So, very much continuing that narrative.
0: That's all we have time for in this preview. There really is so much more interesting art in these sales than we can cover here. I do hope you'll spend some time with each of the Auction House's catalogs. I also want to thank Helena, Giovanna, Catherine and Cheyenne for the generosity in devoting the time to talking us through the few artists we were able to cover here. Finally, please download the Live Art app or refresh and update the app if you're using it. You'll get the most out of the London sales if you do. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the Live Art app, or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence podcast. We're looking forward to it.